Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? (laughs) Well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. (laughs) Well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. So today we are thinking about how people do bad things, I suppose, in its its sort of broadest sense. Mm. And it's something that's fascinated psychologists, but also everybody, you know, how come, how can people do such terrible things? And they sometimes seem quite normal Mm. and yet they've done uh, atrocious things. So we're not here talking about psychopaths or, you know, people like that. We're talking about ordinary people doing terrible things. So yeah, the, um, I suppose we're talking a little bit about the banality of evil. Yeah. So that, that, actually is something that that we definitely want to talk about so that was a a, that's a quote from somebody called Hannah Arendt Mm -hmm. Um, and we'll we'll come to that so I think there's there's a lot there's been a lot of discussion over the years around you know how people who were in the Nazi regime around the second world war you know in charge of concentration camps essentially could do what they did so actually that spawned a lot of psychology that spawned a lot of um, the experiments and the studies that have become classics if you like or or the standard studies that people generally you know people know about and uh, that was a big question on the margin how could people do such terrible things you know they do these horrible things like uh, plan how to exterminate people in the most efficient way possible and then they'd go home to their families and look after their kids, you know. Mm. And the question was, how is that possible? But I think it's relevant to cults as well. What do you think? Well, yeah, I think obviously that's the most sort of, it's a very um, intense case that is therefore really important to study and was, and you know, there was some really important stuff that came from that psychologically. Um, but I mean, cults do some really awful things just because they're not on necessarily as grand a scale. Doesn't mean that they're not as um, damaging to people. Yeah, I mean, you you could actually describe Nazi Germany as a as a nation cult at the time, mm-hmm. couldn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, a bit like you know, some people describe North Korea as, as yeah. the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think it's definitely relevant to our podcast, and I think it's useful to get into the weeds because. There's a lot of work in this area and there's a lot of stuff that kind of is part of the pop psychology world. In particular, uh, Stanley Milgram's experiments on obedience and compliance. So I think a lot of our listeners will, will have at least had some awareness of these experiments, but some won't. So what do you know about them, Celine? To be fair... I'm sure that he did many experiments, but I only know really the one where, um, yeah. um, you know, he tells someone that 
he's going to get them to electrocute someone when they do something <laughs> bad. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like a punishment. Um, obviously they're not actually doing that, but they believe they're doing that. Um, and he, uh, you know, keeps telling them to keep going and keep going until the point where if it was real, someone would be dead. The participants, if we want to call them that, um, yeah. in this study generally kept going until that point. Yeah. So let's, um, let's just do a quick overview of the experiment. Now I'll put some links on the show notes because there's a, a couple of uh, really good videos actually on YouTube of the actual experiment. So you can actually see the actual experiments that he did, or at least some of them. And it's it's, very, it's fascinating. If you really watch it carefully, you can actually see in real time something going on. There's something going on there. And the way that it's been interpreted is is one thing. I think there's, you know, there's sort of slight revision of, of what we think about what was going on in that lab. But let's just uh, go do a quick overview. So basically, uh, Milgram, this is back in the 1960s, um, 61 to 63. I think he did a number, actually quite do you a know few. Of where these. it is? Was this in the It world? was in Yale, Yale University yeah, in, in the United States. Okay. Milgram gets a group of participants. I mean, in those days, they were called subjects uh, to take part in the study. He basically advertised and... Um, there was a, a small fee that they paid them just for turning up, essentially. And they were told that the experiment was about learning and about the role of punishment in learning. So they were told that this experiment was to understand whether punishment affected people's learning or the threat of punishment would affect people's learning. And the uh, the, the person doing the experiment, the experimenter, was dressed in a white coat. It was all a lab. It looked all very, you know, sciency. And he explains to each participant on their own with the person that is um, essentially a stooge. He's he's actually part of the experiment, but the participant doesn't know this. So there's two of them sat there being briefed about what this is about you know this is an experiment about learning and about punishment in learning essentially they thought they were drawing lots to see who was going to be the learner and who's going to be what they called the teacher and of course it was set up so that the participant would always be the teacher and the stooge the person who's part of the experiment would also would always be the learner once that had happened there was a few little things to make it feel real like the the participant got to feel an electric shock. He actually got to feel a little bit of what that would feel like. So they, they knew it was real. And then they separate. They go into two different rooms. And at that point, the the stooge is no longer really part of it. There's just a recording of a man's voice. So the participant is now faced with a bank of switches each supposedly giving an increased shock. So he gives them a set of questions every time the learner gets it wrong the participant has to give him a, an electric shock by flicking a switch and, and this bank of switches goes you know from fairly low voltage to increasingly high voltage right up to 500 volts and and actually it says on the the little label you know severe shock danger and then the very last one is labeled triple x <laughs> <laughs> So as far as the as far as the participant is concerned, they're here to 
operate this machine and through doing this they're supposed to be helping the person on the other side be better at learning or at least help us understand how learning works or how punishment the role punishment has in learning so you've got this person here who thinks they're delivering electric shocks to the person on the other side and there's a recording of a man on the other side going ow ow stop it let me out um but each time the experimenter says to the participant um no you must continue you know and there's actually four instructions so again it was quite well controlled in some respects the experiment so there were four things that the experimenter would say to the participant firstly he would say please continue so every time the participant said look he's he's hurting him and he would just say please continue Mm -hmm. the next one next level was the experiment requires that you continue look he's, he's getting hurt he's shouting out the experiment requires that you continue and the next one to that was well the next one up from that was it's absolutely essential that you continue and the final instruction was you have no other choice you must go on so this is essentially what the experiment was saying to the participant and the question was how far would the participant go how far would they go in giving electric shocks to this poor soul in the other room who they thought was a real person shouting crying out i've had enough i don't want to do this anymore how far would they go and the uh, what happened there was quite a few different conditions that they used so actually it isn't just one experiment but the sort of baseline one that everybody talks about is um, out of 40 participants 26 went all the way so if they didn't go all the way to triple x then actually they counted them out they said they didn't conform if they went all the way to triple x then they conformed they were obedient and that was 26 out of 40 so 65 percent of people in this condition um, went all the way to triple x even though they could hear the person shouting on the other side of the wall and you know the, everything told them that even felt the electric shock everything told them that this person on the other side was in danger and yet they carried on doing it so that was the the setup of the experiment now obviously ethically um, there are some problems about that so yeah i mean that's something that i know you're you're kind of interested in what, what what's your concerns well, about that i think the issue is that i think sometimes yeah people like rain these sort of studies as being really miraculous and important because we could never do these now because of the way that ethics is and like they're really um important studies and that, that they are important to look back on but i also think we need to um you know use our critical thinking as we always go on about um and mm. consider like other reasons that people might keep doing something that they don't want to do other than you know the specific variables they think they've set up there in the sense of like you know if they're like I said being paid they might think what if I you know what if I desperately need this money and if I stop doing this will they not let me have that do you know what I mean um there's things like that Mm. that could be playing a part and I'm sure lots of other things that I've not considered so I suppose that's like the danger also there in terms of just the study also just ethically (laughs) um I don't know if they had any sort of aftercare for these people (laughs) um yeah so they they did a debrief and um they explained to them obviously what had happened Mm. um and they also did a questionnaire 
later to see you know how they felt about the experiment and the general feedback was that actually they really appreciated the experiment and they found it to be really helpful to them because obviously they they were relieved that the person wasn't getting hurt but it taught them something about themselves Mm. and about questioning doing what you're told and and so on so this is the claim but I think you know I think we'd have to again there's a bit of skepticism there around how robust that questionnaire was and you know how it might have affected people and also ironically on. the people in charge now asking you to do a questionnaire about how you felt about the compliance <laughs> exactly so this is this is one of the reasons why social scientists actually are are a bit uh, well it's been looked at a lot over the years because it's riddled with these difficulties yeah. oh you did a study today on us telling you how to behave how do you That's feel right. about that <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's right. And it's one of the things that social scientists kind of think about now a lot more when it comes to research is is the situation. So all research is what, you know, we call it situated. Mm. Um, and when you set up a lab, you are, of course, creating a, a whole set of social structures, not just in the wider world, but also within that little room. Um, so it's always a little bit problematic to say well what's happening here can be translated to the wider world but i think i think it's too sniffy to say that nothing was going on no, there yeah. that I is think of, it's interest. Definitely of interest i think it's just important mm. we don't like um not glorify but i don't know the word like um put it too much on a pedestal we remember those things but well i think it's important that we we get the right uh, we draw the right conclusions from mm. it. it is perhaps even more important so you know what actually was it showing so one of the things that we've kind of taken from this if you read any book about pop psychology or whatever you'll hear this experiment talked about and again you'll you'll see lots of it replicated in fact um again i'll put a link on this Darren brown who we talk mm-hmm. about quite a lot on this show um maybe one day we'll get him on um you never know mm. <laughs> dare we mm. So he does a, an episode, actually, one of his specials called The Heist. Mm. And this is about getting normal middle managers to commit a crime. Mm. But in the middle of the episode, he actually reconstructs the the experiment. It's a very good job of it, actually. So if you want to really understand how that experiment worked, if my explanation didn't really help you picture it, then that's a really good one to, to look at because that's really exactly how he did it. Um, so you can actually watch it. Off he it. goes again, Darren Brown, doing things psychologists yeah. can't. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Actually, um, the thing is, it's like he's my guilty pleasure thing as well, though, because I do watch his stuff, yeah. but I am like, it is, is, is it ethically okay what he's doing? But anyway, moving on. Yeah, so um, so yeah, I think it's important, though, to, as you say, to draw the, um, the right conclusions from it. So I think the message that often we get... Um, from things like the Darren Brown's special and also from other popular cultures um, such as Peter Gabriel's song, We Do What We're Told, which is about that experiment, is um, is it is just about obedience. So the message is that, you know, we are hardwired to obey authority. So the the scientist or the person doing the experiment looks like your prototypical scientist white coat pens in the top pocket middle-aged white man the the lab looks like a lab he went to great lengths to make the the box with all the switches on look as 
technical and realistic as possible. Um, everything's screened. This is a science experiment and it's very important. But the, the message that uh, I think is easy to just go away with is that authority figure tells somebody what to do and they just do it mindlessly. And in a way, that's that's the the lesson that has been drawn and that's where some criticism of this term, the banality of evil, has come mm. in, in that the impression could be that, you know, people will just do what they're told. Mm. Put, put somebody in authority and people will comply so long as they think the authority is real. Um, and actually, the experiment, it's perhaps a lot more complicated than that. So actually, did they just obey because somebody in authority said they should, or was it something different? So that's, I think, quite useful. Now, that's relevant to us in our thoughts around cults, because on the one hand, you know, if what cults do is they set up an authority or a set of authorities. So for ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, we perhaps think about the elders and the circuit overseers and branch overseers and all of these people there's like a hierarchy and the governing body at the top is that is that what's going on so if the governing body say you should shun your relatives is that are we obeying that or are people obeying that because the authority has told them to that's what we could end up thinking about from the milgram experiment is it's all about authority you know and i think there's some truth in that you know there's some element of obedience to authority we tend to look to authority to give us guidance about what we should do next but i think there's you know looking at the the ongoing discussion on this there's more to it um so for one one of the the questions was the philosopher Pare said that actually this experiment wasn't about obedience mm. it was about trust and when you think about that, that's really interesting because if the participant thought that the person, they could trust the experimenter because they kept saying, you know, is he going to be all right? Is he okay? Mm. And the experimenter would sort of say, there's no lasting damage. Can you continue, please? It's important that you continue with all those four things they said. But they would assume that in this setting that this person authority they could trust them that they weren't going to kill the person on the other side of the wall Mm. so for harry it's about trust it's the fact that they trusted this person not that they just mindlessly a bit obeyed them what do you think about that maybe in that situation specifically if you're looking to be reassured i think i suppose to a degree it's it's just what language you choose to subscribe to it i don't think in the case of stuff like what was happening like in in nazi germany that was about trust do you know what i mean Mm. that was just about yeah people you know that that was people doing their job regard knowing what would happen do you know what i mean and then i guess if you want to like flip that over there is it that they've been given clues that it's dangerous, like the triple X and the like serious danger. So there's reasons to be distrustful um, of what this person is saying. And, you know, all of the other information is that someone is dying on the other side of that wall. Um, 
And so is it more about shifting of blame than it is about trust? <laughs> like you can say, well, I a, didn't yeah. do it, I asked and it was mm, fine. That's right. And that's a very good that's a very good question. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's um that that's very very interesting. Um yeah, so I, like you I'm I'm not completely convinced by that, but I think it's a it's good question, question about the experiment. Mm. It certainly doesn't answer the question around as you say um atrocities that people carry out. Like I presume it's like you don't you don't give yourself like personal blame because you say I was just mm. you know that yeah, well, I was just orders. following orders. Mm. I I mm. checked if it was right. Yeah. Um and they said, "Yeah, so I did it." <laughs> That's right, but but you still then uh, have an uncomfortable uh, situation where it suggests that human beings will do terrible mm. things if they are able to shift the blame. Mm. And in a way, that's that's kind of another way of 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 just accepting authority, isn't it? That you know, well, actually, I don't have the authority. I'm going to I'm going to do what I'm told because the authority is with them. Therefore I'm no longer, um, I can't be blamed for it because I'm just following mm. orders. So in a way that, that is, that is Milgram's conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's, what's really interesting. And again, I'll put another link on the podcast notes for this. So people can watch, uh, a video that talks about this, but there's the, um, some of the, the, le- the recent challenges to this is, is actually, if you look deeper into the experiment, so there's Alex Haslam and, um, what's his name, uh, Reicher, um, have done some further sort of digging into this. One thing that we can say about Milgram is he, he kept his notes. Mm. <laughs> so you can actually look at all his experimental notes and you can really get a sense for what he was doing. And one of the things that they found, which is really interesting, was, you know, I said there was four different mm. things that the experimenter would say to the participant to try and get them to carry on. Please continue. The experiment requires that you continue. It's absolutely essential that you continue, and you you have no other choice. You must go on. You may notice there that the only one that required obedience is at the end. You have no other choice. You must go on. Mm. All the others are more lighter requests, like please continue. Um, the experiment requires that you continue. Now, it turns out if you were looking at, um, if this was proving obedience, you would expect that the, the harder the command or the more clear the command, the more successful that command would be so you would expect you have no other choice you must go on you would expect that to be quite successful because the experiment is supposed to be about obedience therefore telling somebody you've got to do it you've got no choice you'd expect that to be quite successful as a command Mm. but it turns out that zero percent actually followed that so by the time they got to that people were out Mm. (laughs) So if it was only about obedience, then that you would expect that to be much more powerful. In fact, what was most powerful was, please continue, closely followed by the experiment requires that you continue. I think it being kind of neutral makes it more likely because it makes it less like, go on, murder that person. It's, it does <laughs> sound very much like everyone's aware at this point what we're doing and go on. Like, I don't know, like yeah. the ones are a bit more like, 
yeah, they're they're more neutral. They don't sound as like threatening. <laughs> also, just one other thing though, it's um, it's pointed at them specifically. So previous, it's been like, please continue. The experiment requires this time. It's you have to. It's yeah. all right. centered on the person. So if we yeah. did want to run with the blame thing, at this point, it's you've gone too far. You have to keep going. Now it's you. This is what you've got to do potentially. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, can I introduce the the other sort of main thrust mm-hmm. of of what Haslam mm-hmm. and Reicher are suggesting is that actually what's happening is that the participants are being encouraged to identify with the experiment and to be part of an important thing, Mm. to be part of a scientific endeavor that's going to help humanity, that they are, they describe it as engaged fellowship Mm. as opposed to blind obedience. Mm -hmm. And this is the nub of the, the criticism of the, of the simplistic way we tend to think about Milgram is that, Actually, it's not about blind obedience. People are not generally not blindly obedient, but they will do terrible things if they are engaged as engaged followers. And this matches what people have said about um, Eichmann, who was in the trial where this phrase came out when, when it was reviewed by Hannah Arendt, you know, this banality of evil. The criticism of it was that actually Eichmann really believed in what he was doing. Mm. He wasn't just following orders. He really believed that what he was doing was Mm. right. Same goes for these participants, that everything about that experiment was saying, this is an important experiment. This is going to help humanity. We want you to help us with this important experiment. So they became engaged in the enterprise. They became engaged in the process. Mm. So they weren't just blindly obeying. If they hadn't have said, this is the importance of it, this is why it's important, we want you to be part of it. If they'd just literally walked in and said, right, we want you to electric shock this person, people would not have been obedient. Mm. So actually what was happening, it was a case of engagement, which for me is really interesting. You know, as a management trainer, it's something we talk about all the time, engaging your people, mm. because you get much better responses that way. Barking orders at people actually doesn't create engagement. So I think it's really interesting. And it's been in front of us there all the time. And if you look at a lot of what uh, Milgram said about that experiment, he's hinting a lot at that. That's not the the message that people tend to get from the experiment. But actually, that's that's the lesson that perhaps we should be learning, is that people are capable of doing really terrible things if they believe in it Mm. and they'll believe in it if the leader can engage them uh, convince them that it's the right thing to do that it's an important thing to do and that's when they'll do what they're told Mm. and that sits absolutely beautifully i think with what we know about cults Mm. what do you think yeah well i suppose we we do know that like it wasn't like they just got to that stage immediately continue using the um Nazi camps as an example i mean they'd been raised on propaganda for yeah. years um you know mm-hmm. some of them had been from a fairly young age to the point where they're in the army have been raised on that information and told who's the good guys and who's the bad guys and what we're going to do yeah we know that they've been fed propaganda for a long time so a lot of people probably did 
believe horrible things that made it easier to do things. Yeah, one of the things that um, perhaps was most chilling is looking at the notes when they did that follow-up and they asked people how they felt Mm. about it participants actually were pretty happy because mm. they thought they'd contributed to science by their efforts you know they they'd done something wonderful they'd helped um so rather than feeling guilty and um worried about their own mm. behavior they thought yeah that was great you know i've, I've contributed to something well, really important because yeah, people need to protect themselves don't they <laughs> Well, maybe, but uh, you know that's that's sidestepping the conclusions mm. that we've just come to, which is actually the reason they felt good about it was because they were part of a scientific experiment. And don't forget, in the sixties, science was, I think, held up in perhaps more um, esteem than than many people do these mm. days. You know, it was it was people respected science respected scientists Mm -hmm. and therefore to be part of this experiment was was really something you know so um the the conclusion that they came to in this uh in this sort of revision of of looking at what we learn from milgram is that it's not blind obedience it's engaged followership it's Mm -hmm. that that makes the difference it's that that means that you know people behave in a certain way and people will follow, do things that are actually, you know, you would think, well, it's completely out of character for them. Do you want to talk about it in a culty way then? Yeah, so I think, you know, if you think about some of the things that, that happens in cults, uh, and again, we, uh, you know, we don't have to just focus on Jehovah's Witnesses. You can think about all sorts of things that people do, um, you know, abandoning their wives or um, even carrying out murder. You know, you think about the things that, Charles Manson did and the way that he got people to to murder other people mm. it wasn't just because he told them to it was because he'd created a culture and a um a, a, a way of thinking about the world that they wanted to be involved they were very keen mm. you know what I mean they they wanted to do it and uh, I think you can think about um you know, extreme extremism in terms of uh, extreme terrorism and um, rag- radicalization. What is radicalization? Radicalization is creating a a belief system that means that people want to do certain things to further the cause. So yes, they'll they'll follow orders, but they will do because they believe in it. So I think that's what's happening with with cults and. Um, I suppose that that could ask a lot of questions around what people do within cults. And I think there's a tension here around the way that people think about people's behavior in cults, you know. So maybe I ask you this question and we can talk from it. Um, People that do certain things in cults, like, let's say, um, abandon their their grown-up children, let's say, so shun them or um, deny their child a blood transfusion that would save their life. Or just, you know, some other groups, it might be medical treatment altogether. So uh, deny their children or their partner medical treatment because that's against their rules. Um, You know, think about some of the very aggressive tactics of some cults towards people um who are apostates and so on these are all pretty unpleasant things 
what what should we think about those people are they bad people or are they are they victims of a belief system or what well i don't think we're ever going to spin around all of a sudden at this podcast after over 100 episodes to be like yes all the rank and file are evil because i think we spend a lot of time <laughs> saying they're not and yeah. they are as i just said rank and file so mm. um you know they have a belief system and a set of ways that they are controlled um and and this is just another i guess model we talk about models this is another way of modeling it and examining how that process works so it's an area that i'm quite interested in and i'd like to talk to others about this question depends on what you're talking about as well isn't it it depends Mm. like you've mentioned very Mm. different things from like yeah shunning is obviously awful and people are faced with awful repercussions when they are shunned but um you know it is different to murder um Sure. Or like, you know, a, a, or like physical abuse or something like that. Um, mm. So it, I think maybe it's arbitrary, but I kind of feel like there is some lines to draw, and there are your own personal mm. lines to how you feel. Um, like in terms of if you leave and someone shuns you, if you are angry at them, I think that's okay <laughs> that you're angry at them. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that shunning's okay because. They're just like controlled, but obviously murder's not because you should know better than to get controlled that far. I'm just saying they're all individual things yeah. and how you feel about them as an ex yeah. is your own yeah. place yeah, yeah. to be. That's right. I think uh, we, we have to have we have to take responsibility for our actions um as a principle. Even the law has this defence of diminished responsibility. Um I think it's tricky and yeah, you're probably right. It's a case by case basis to determine how much a person is responsible for what they're doing, but it does raise some difficult questions. I mean, you know, I've shunned people. Mm. I've walked past people in the street that I've known and purposely avoided them or crossed the road. I've, I've, I was asked to, be a best man at a wedding and I refused on the basis that a disfellowship person was going to be at the wedding Mm -hmm. Um, a person I knew refused to go to their sister's son's funeral somebody I grew up with actually who died in a motorcycle accident and this sister, this Jehovah's Witness woman, refused to go to the funeral of her nephew um, because it was going to be in a church. So these are not these are not things like obviously murder and the extremes that you might see in some of these extreme courts, but these are these are pretty unpleasant things. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, elders, you know, will be responsible for these fellowshipping people and many of those come out of the organization and then have to grapple with that. And I think it's a really tricky area. And and I think it's something that we probably should talk about how to come to terms with those things. Mm. Um, But I would say that the way that the organization got me to shun people um, wasn't because I just did what I was told because I 
thought they were in authority, although I'm sure there was some of that. But I believed what I was doing was for their own good. I believed that the organisation was, um, you know, God's organisation and the governing body were God's instrument mm. to help us to keep the congregation clean. Therefore, that was what we had to do. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's that's important. Is there an element of just doing what you're told? Yes, I think there is an element of that, but it's it's tied up with with a whole big belief system that sits next to it that that makes you believe that what you're doing is right. And in that respect, I think the whilst you can't help but feel a bit bad about that, you know, and I still feel bad about that. I think it's important not to torture yourself because we were doing what we thought was right but that's that's hard if you're on the other end of it do you know what I mean yeah I think it's it's like this thing in terms of what I've heard about before in terms of if you've made mistakes and you go to someone to make amends that's Mm. for you to say like I'm sorry because you want to say you're sorry but you can't expect them to say yeah it's all good now it's okay um you know you you do what you can to like get your to do what you need to do and apologize for things that you feel bad about but you don't expect to have you know the same friendship or relationship that you used to have i guess that acknowledgement that you you might in some instances get to retrieve those things but in other instances they might be too hurt for that and that's Mm. sad but You've done it what is, you and can. I've sometimes on on Twitter and, and other social media and and other interactions, um, like notes on uh, YouTube discussions and so on. I've seen comments, um, even directed at at me um, mm. personally. Not that they knew knew me, but um, which are you know quite bitter and. Um, uh, you know, not willing to say that actually this is this is the organisation and people were operating within the bounds of what they thought was right, and, and you know still still feeling very bitter towards the individuals involved, and and I absolutely understand that. Mm-hmm. So I refuse to to get upset about that because I think that's that's as you kind of nicely said, it's their right, mm-hmm. isn't it, really, to respond how they want to. And it may or may not be helpful or useful for them, but it is their right to feel yeah. how they want to feel. And I think you can't rush people over because I don't think holding on to like anger is good, but I think people have a right to their feelings um, yeah. and you need to let them have them. And if you want to apologize, that's cool, but they don't, they don't have to then diminish mm. all of their feelings to yeah. make you feel yeah, okay. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause then it becomes about, it becomes about the perpetrator, not the victim, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, and so, you know, yeah. it probably in all likelihoods so they've got people they need to apologise for too, and things they have to mm. apologise. So it's just you know, hopefully, over time, people can find you know comfort and being okay in what is the past and where they are now. But it takes time. It might not all yeah. work out that everybody's best friends again, but you'll probably be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
But I think understanding the psychological processes around it is helpful. Mm. And I think, you know, looking at things like the um, the Milgram experiment, if we kind of look at it in that way, the way that it was all set up to get people to behave in a certain way, I think that makes a lot more sense than people just do what they're told. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so that was interesting. We, we need to talk about the Zimbardo study mm. another time. Um, yeah, it's not an experiment because it doesn't have... Um, what does it have, Celine? It doesn't have an independent variable. I see, I see. Or so Zimbardo, realistically, but it's fine. The, the, the very famous Zimbardo experiment is actually not an experiment. Oh. We could call it a study. Um, could just but call it's not it an experiment. a mess. But that's for the future, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, it's quite controversial because a lot of... Um, a lot of cult researchers, um, some of whom I'm big fans of, um, are also big fans of Zimbardo and his work. Mm. Um, there's a lot of things that worry me about his work, but maybe I need to, I need to um, think a bit more about it. But yeah, we, it's quite a controversial one. We need to, we need to look at that as yeah. another, uh, as another I episode. Find him, but, yeah. I just, I just find. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, we'll look more into it. I just find it a bit stressful what I mean that he did that and then somehow was still able to just carry on doing like <laughs> Well, this was the Wild West era yeah. of um, of psychology, mm. so people, as we've said, kind of that is a real big mess. So that, that did actively go wrong in front of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um It's even wild for the yeah, Wild West, this... you know. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. So but anyway, that's for the future. So yeah, but we'll we'll come to that at some point then. I think what we should yeah. do as well is we should watch um, the Hannah Arden movie. Um, mm. That's an interest, and do a little review thing like we yeah. do sometimes because yeah. it's a really good movie. It's actually mm. very very good. Yeah, I think um, I don't want to come across that I sort of agree with any personal criticisms about her. I think I still think the banality of evil is a very useful phrase because it becomes routine and for me that's what that means um so you know you'd oh what did you do today darling oh well i just did some you know just did some work in the office and for that it would it would mean some of the most hideous things but it just becomes routine it's also an interesting movie though because it shows people that you know there's a lot there was a lot of backlash at the time from that so it's interesting to talk about and it does Hmm. um quite heavily focus on that so that would be cool to um to look into but yeah those are some future episodes good well um that was really interesting Mm -hmm. thank you very much Uh, i should just say to our listeners i will try to edit it out but we um halfway through this our neighbor decided to do some drilling on the wall we have a semi-detached house so they decided to put some shelves up or something in the room which of course they're allowed to drill for the fun of it though to be honest i think they have like a board that they drill into because don't be i'm not being nasty it they don't happens. know they don't know we're doing a podcast yeah, but it just happens all the time <laughs> but anyway so uh anyway it's this room so they decided to do uh whatever they're doing so i'll try to edit it all out but you might now and again hear the the odd strange mm. noise okay. it's that um okay oh, thank, well, you. thank you very much celine good talking mm-hmm. to you i'm off for breakfast thank you for listening everybody yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And um, don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, write a review. do all the things. Write a review, please. We still haven't got many reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, reviews are the thing. Um, so if you can do that, that would be absolutely marvellous. 
Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. <laughs> <laughs>